This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And I want to give a special thank you to Michael C. Bazaruski, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to Linda Bond, who just increased her pledge amount. All right, so now let's get to our panel. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 373 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the issue of pretentiousness in art and reviewing several recent science fiction movies that listeners have called pretentious, including High Life, Beyond the Black Rainbow, Starfish, High Rise, Upstream Color, Under the Skin, and Another Earth. And this may involve spoilers for any of those movies, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Anthony Ha, making his 13th appearance on the show. He covers media, advertising, and pop culture for the news site TechCrunch, where he also hosts the podcast Original Content. A chapbook of his short stories called Love Songs for Monsters was published by Youth in Decline in 2014, and his short story Late Train appears in the February issue of Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me back. The next up, we've got Sarah Lynn Mishner, making her 12th appearance on the show. She's a Ravenclaw Trekkie maker feminist who writes at Medium and lives in New York City with a Renaissance engineer, a dog, and a bird. So, Sarah, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. And also joining us today is John Kessel, who you may remember from our panel on The Man in the High Castle back in episode 179, from our panel on Creative Writing MFAs back in episode 365, and from our feature interview back in episode 269. He's the author of such novels as The Moon and the Other and Pride and Prometheus, and such short story collections as The Pure Product and The Bomb Plan for Financial Independence. He helped organize the Creative Writing MFA program at North Carolina State University, and also served as its first director. So, John, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Okay, and so this panel on pretentious science fiction movies is going to pick up a conversation that I was having on Facebook with John and a few other people. And so in that conversation, I was initially defining pretentious movies as movies where there's a huge mismatch between how deep and intellectual a movie presents itself as versus how deep and intellectual it actually is, and where the filmmaker seems to be more concerned with being perceived as a great artist than with actually producing great art. I've uh, elaborated that a little bit more since then, but let's just start with that. And so I was actually a little bit surprised in that conversation how much pushback I got on just the idea that any movie should be called pretentious or what that was a valid observation to make. And so John, you initially said that you thought that the, just the term pretentious as you called it a loaded term. So yeah. let's just start with that. What did you mean when you say that it's a loaded term? Well, I think often it's used as a term of abuse. And, and uh, if there's some kind of ambitious work of art that you don't like, then you're pretty likely to call it pretentious. I, I'm sure I've done it myself. And to some degree, it seems to me this is relative to whether it strikes a chord in you or not. If a, if a work uh, is is ambitious and strikes a chord in you, then you're much more willing to put up with things, maybe obscurities or things that aren't, aren't uh, as explained or artistic moves. Uh, whereas if, if it doesn't uh, connect with you, then you think, oh, no, this is just pretentious crap. And I think that uh, this is largely subjective. Although, I, I, having watched all these movies in the last <laughs> week or two, uh, <laughs> I, I begin to see that there is a, there's a use for the term pretension. 
Yeah, I, I was wondering if uh, if watching, so if you just had no idea some of these things were out there and that might change your mind. Well, I'd seen some of these films before and and uh, I know I, I guess it, the the big thing is uh, what you said, uh, the, the disjuncture between what the filmmaker or the creators of the film think they, they're doing and what they did. Okay, and if there's a big gap between what they present as doing uh, as being really important and deep and intellectual versus what they've done, then I think that uh, 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 then we were much more likely to call it pretentious. There's also the element of mannerism. It seems to me that that uh, a lot of films will adopt a kind of uh, uh, manner, you know, long cuts and very little dialogue and no explanation and all that kind of thing that, that it seems to me lends itself to seeing the work as pretentious. Mm -hmm. How about Anthony? What do you think when I uh, contacted you about this topic? Did you feel like this is a sort of a mean topic or that this is hitting below the belt or something to, to say that something is pretentious? It was interesting because I didn't necessarily think that you meant pretentious in a negative way when you first brought it up. Um, and uh, when you sent sort of that initial list of films, it seemed like a mix of films that I enjoyed and appreciated, even if I did maybe find some of them a bit overlong or, or tedious, and others that I, I didn't care for. Um, but that, that to me, maybe I, I'm sort of used to sometimes just seeing it as a sort of more tongue-in-cheek and slightly dismissive way of saying ambitious. And, and so I think certainly pretentious can mean this was an ambitious film that I didn't like or that I found boring. Um, I think also that there's a way to use pretentious in sort of a less judgmental way where you're essentially talking about films that are, you know, genre films, but that also seem to borrow very heavily from sort of a more of an art film tradition. And so they can be very slow, not plot driven. And so I think there's also, even if we like some of the films, when we use the label pretentious, there can be a feeling of, oh, I know what you're talking about, even if I don't agree that there's this mismatch that you're talking about. I mean, one film that I think would be sort of a good sort of litmus test for that would be some, would be 2001, which I think is an incredibly pretentious film in some ways, and I also think is a complete masterpiece and one of my favorite films of all time. Yeah, I actually went and looked up some definitions of pretentious, and, and some of them are not, they don't involve any pejorative. They just say that the work claims to some element of distinction or importance or dignity or excellence, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's phony. Well, let's, let's get Sarah in here. What was, Sarah, what did you think about being invited to talk about pretentious movies on a panel? What was your reaction to that? I thought, oh, thank God, I can finally use that 45 grand a year art school education. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, if anything, like I, I feel like, you know, one of the things that I did get out of art school that was very positive is the fact that I, it is very, very hard for me to speak negatively about something because you have for several years, you have somebody making you see, you know, some, some form of art that you would otherwise dismiss in, you know, at any number of ways and making it, you see it from other people's perspectives. I mean, you know, on, on art, art museum field trips, we would stand in front of a, a giant painting of a black square with a, another painting of a slightly less dark black square inside of it and you spend two seconds in front of it and start walking away and your professor comes up to you and says oh no 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 you're going to stand here and we're going to talk about this which is actually something that happened to me um and so you know especially i think 
you know, uh, someone was saying that, you know, or inferring that, that pretentiousness is going to be about, you know, how broad essentially your, uh, uh, what you've been, uh, exposed to. Because when you've been exposed to a wide variety of art, you're just going to have very different, very specific definitions of what would be pretentious. Um, you know, in art school, we literally had to watch a half an hour film that somebody made of a flickering light bulb. <laughs> it was a flickering light bulb for a half an hour. Another guy brought in a video of himself masturbating on the roof of his BMW. And we had to watch that. And we had to take everything seriously. We were not allowed to laugh. We were not allowed to, you know, to just mock somebody for bringing in their homework. Um, so, you know, it, it, coming from that perspective, most of these films are, you know, palatable, uh, with the exception of one of them that we will get to. I'm sure you might, you might even know which one I'm talking about. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, to me, I would define pretentiousness as sort of obfuscation for its own sake in film. Well, I, I mean, I, I certainly, you know, I've attended a lot of writing workshops and, you know, I did an MFA and stuff like that. And I, I certainly met a lot of people who I thought were more interested in being like coming across as a writer than in actually writing. And I don't think that that's yeah. an unusual experience. I would imagine art school is sort of the same thing. And yeah, and the the thing is, there's nothing wrong with pleasuring people. There's nothing wrong with telling a story for the sake of moving people. And I think that people get so embarrassed by the vulnerability of art that they want to make something that is above all of that, you know. And and how dare you ask to be entertained? That kind of thing. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I I I have a lot of feelings uh, about this this topic and. You know, there's there's nothing inherently smart about making a story difficult for an audience to follow. And, it, you know, if you are taking out information or purposefully obfuscating something, some some critical part of the story, you know, ask yourself what what is served by by keeping this this back? You know, because a lot of a lot of film, you know, there's a spectrum, right, where things can be heavy handed and obvious on one end. And way too subtle on the other where, you know, you're missing out on, on some huge critical part of the plot that would make it a much more enjoyable, more interesting, more thought provoking experience. So there's, there's definitely a spectrum. I mean, I want to come back to Anthony's point about is pretentious. Can you separate pretentious from ambitious or do they just mean the same thing and whether you like it or not is the difference? I mean, it seems to me that there are – it depends on what you mean by ambitious. I mean, certainly I would say that um, – I'm trying to think of good examples, but I mean like Terminator 2 is an ambitious movie. I mean, it's like huge – you know, it was the most expensive movie ever made at the time. It's got tons of stuff going on. I mean, it's not, you know, like an easy movie to make, but it's um, – I, I don't think anyone would call it pretentious. Um right. So can we can we tease apart? So John, can we tease apart what's the difference between pretentious and ambitious? I think it's really difficult to do that, frankly. Uh, you know, today is the 200th anniversary of the birth of Herman Melville, and oh. uh, his yeah his first couple of books were best selling books about his uh, experiences in the South Seas, and uh, he was celebrated as this you know big hit writer. He's in his mid twenties when this happened. And by the age of 38, he could not sell any fiction. His work got more and more serious. Our, we, the works that we think today are his best works, Moby Dick and Pierre and The Confidence Man, 
when the conference man came out in uh, 1857, uh, it was complete and utter flop. People thought he was nuts. And so, you know, I don't know what the, the moral of that is, but I guess it, it does seem to me that there is some art that may seem difficult to audiences that that still has some some it has something going there are reasons for it being difficult i guess is what i'm trying to say here although i i very much uh like sarah feel that no one should ever have to be ashamed about telling a story or engaging the audience or or giving them something that gives them pleasure i think that that that's part of art is to give pleasure but the question is um what sorts does is everyone get pleasure from the same things and are there some kinds of pleasures that may be a little difficult if you're not what used to them um so um you know i i don't know i mean i i like uh you know i like hamburgers uh but i also <laughs> i also like uh you know fine french cooking all right uh it doesn't mean i want to eat escargot every day um and, and i i don't think that one ought to preclude the other so i i'm just talking around it here i'm i'm sure i'm not sure in other words uh what David, whether it'd be easy to come up with a hard and fast rule, uh, you know, of the movies, uh, you had on your list here that we watched. I mean, some of them, uh, let me give you my take for, for the least watchable movie. And that was beyond the black rainbow, which I thought was, it was almost impossible for me to watch it. (laughs) It was so (laughs) slow and so cryptic and so, unmotivated and and you know a long take of a camera watching the ceiling of a hallway as we move down it and the color changes from blue to red i i I don't quite if there's a if there's a significant intellectual content to that i'm uh, it missed me and so you know that to me that was a case where it seems to me that style the 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 filmmaker was so interested in creating a certain kind of distant style and and to to uh, uh not to not give the kind of ordinary uh cause and effect plotting and things like that 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 it 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 really uh became tedious beyond belief right i i agree with you that i found the first hour completely unwatchable um i thought toward the end it at least became watchable i mean i never would have thought it was good i mean it did have i thought a great visual sense and um, the same director went on to make this movie Mandy with Nicolas Cage, which I think has gotten a pretty positive reception. I haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, I, I could never possibly recommend this movie to anybody. Um, Sarah, what did you think of Beyond the Black Rainbow? Uh, I think there's a wonderful 10-minute short <laughs> film in there somewhere. Like 95% of the movie could be edited out. And you would still have, like even the first three minutes. The first three minutes are a better film than the rest of the film combined. You have this wonderful, you know, you start out with this this wonderful sense of creepy eeriness, and you're very concerned about this woman and why she's in this 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 uh, situation that she's in where she's essentially been, you know, you assume kidnapped, and this very creepy sort of scientist abductor guy who is watching her through a window and through some, like she's in some kind of glass cage. And you get all of that in the first three minutes, and it's very creepy and very unsettling and very moody. You've already struck all of that. You've accomplished all of that in the first three minutes. And the the, the next, you know, hour is just expanding on that and 
for no for no reason. You know, you just you've already established all of that. You've already done all of that. So move on. So I feel like there's a wonderful ten minute short buried in that movie. But yeah, I I found myself you know, incredibly drawn to looking at my phone. <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> but I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I am so bored right now. Well, let me put in, so let me put in a counterpoint. So my friend Seth Dickinson says, beyond the black rainbow can't be pretentious. It is openly and without pretense meant to be extreme eighties, post LSD, bad trip cinema. And it's hilarious. Uh, I mean, it would be if, if it came with LSD for me to consume <laughs> before I watched it. <laughs> well, there was a, there, it did seem it, I mean, it starts with a, actually with a scientist character giving a little, uh, it, it's like a videotape of his, uh, spiel for his institute at the beginning. And it, it seemed, uh, with his haircut and his, his, uh, the way it was lit and, and his portentous voice that, that it could be read as comic. But I guess I've I've failed to see the comedy in, in a lot of it uh, as, as it went along. I mean, and, and Anthony, you haven't seen this one, right? That's right. Um, I, I do remember reading a description of the movie as, or I think an interview with the director where he said, um, you know, he talked about walking down like the, the aisles of a video store and just seeing all the covers of these like 80s horror movies. And then when you watch the movie, it turns out to be much more, those movies, they tend to be much more conventional than what, those covers promised and so he was trying to like i guess make the movie that was created in his head from seeing all those video covers and i really liked that idea but then every review i read said the film was basically unwatchable right i mean like to seth's point here i mean he's saying that basically it's not pretentious because it's it's doing and accomplishing exactly what it set out to do which i mean i think is an interesting point but uh you know if someone said to me you know if i said to a friend oh, should I watch this movie Beyond the Black Rainbow? I don't like pretentious movies. And they said, oh, no, it's not pretentious. And I watched it. I would feel that my friend had lied to me. Uh, <laughs> you know, even if they, you know, even, even if they had some sort of like deep reasoning for why they thought it wasn't pretentious, but just even at a basic surface level, like this is what I mean. When I think, when, just when I hear the word pretentious, it's all this stuff, this kind of stuff John was talking about, the long, long takes. Uh, actually, I made a list here. Um, so this, and this is like, this is, you know, these are sort of the, um, uh, what, you know, like if, like a field guide to, um, pretentious movies, right? You got your grainy film stock, weird electronic music, saturated colors, very long static camera shots, uh, random close-ups of hands and eyes, lots of shots of nature, especially clouds when the movie is not about nature, uh, and the camera is often intentionally out of focus. Um, definitely, definitely a lot of uh, very tight close-ups uh, of of people's faces or or uh, uh, miscellaneous objects. Right. So, so I wonder if pretentious is almost like a genre. You know that it's uh, you know it's just defined well, by I, this constellation <laughs> of. I, yeah. Go ahead, sir. No, I, I think the genre is, is art films. I mean, we're we're seeing we're talking about sort of a, a, a almost an offshoot or a science fiction offshoot of art films because a lot of art films are like this. Um, and you know, I guess that's their community and that's their thing. It's it's kind of like you know being a furry. It's totally. <laughs> I don't. I don't get it. I respect it. I'm like, okay, you do you. I. It's not me, but you know, I'm glad that they exist. Um, and in so many ways, it's, it's sad, actually. In so many ways, it makes you frustrated at sort of the internal 
infrastructure or whatever of Hollywood, that there aren't more aspects or more creators of art films that are being matched up with these people who are making these incredibly predictable commercial. Like, can't we just put them in a room together and have them fix each other's problems? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I just started the new Katie Sackhoff uh, Netflix series, and it's, you know, it's, it's like a science fiction series made up of scraps of other bits of science fiction movies. And it could benefit from some pretentiousness. But I think when you asked earlier, you know, sort of what's the difference between, um, you know, ambitious and, and pretension. Like in art school, we kind of just, we weren't allowed to say to somebody, it looks like you just didn't know, didn't have any work to turn in last night. And you <laughs> came up with this. Like that's so often <laughs> what we were saying to each other behind the scenes. And, you know, you, if that's what people are going to walk away with, if they're going to, you know, like, for instance, Beyond the Black Rainbow, you know, I, I don't know what the filmmaker intended, but I do know that that movie would be very easy to replicate. And these, these sort of, you know, the, the genre movies that David was just describing, like, you could go out and just film a bunch of random shit and put it together, you know, and create kind of a creepy soundtrack with it. And there's your art movie. And, and the fact that, that there is a formula for art movies at this point, and the fact that there are so many of them, it's kind of like, has no one ever looked at this as a whole and decided, gee, these are kind of, uh, incredibly easy to make. And it's really hard for me to, to take something seriously as, as, as a work of art if it's like, I can't see the work. Well, but there are lots of kinds of movies that are, what easy to make in the sense that they're just reproducing the moves of 30 other movies that have been made in the last 50 years. So in oh, other yeah, words, absolutely. You're talking about a genre there. Um, and, and, uh, you know, the things that David listed there are characteristics of some in incredibly good movies. In my opinion, they're good movies, something like stalker. Okay. Which I think is a great movie. Okay. But you know, it's, it's three hours long and, and it doesn't seem like a lot is happening. Or, uh, or, uh, Solaris, uh, um, there are, in other words, or 2001 for that matter. Uh, when I went to see 2001, I was a teenager and, um, I really was entranced by it, but I was, it, it was in a big theater where a lot of people, uh, were there, uh, grownups were there, husbands and wives. And I remember as I was getting out of the, it was an expensive movie. It cost $3.50 to get a ticket, which was a lot of money back then. This is 1968. <laughs> and uh, I was walking out of the theater, and this husband and wife uh, were there. They were all dressed up. The guy had a suit and tie on, and he said to his mutters to his wife, "Well, there's six bucks down the drain." <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I, that was not my response to the movie. Uh, but right. but uh, you know, that you was were like you should have said seven bucks cause <laughs> seven fifty times two. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> not only does he not appreciate movies, he just sucks not, at arithmetic. Got the math is bad too. <laughs> So, uh, in other words, I, I think that the style itself does not necessarily mean that the movie is without content or valuable, okay? And some of these other films, it seems to me, that we watched uh, have some similar moves in them in terms of style, but I think are much better movies. But well, maybe we'll disagree about that. I don't know. Well, well let me just say, so yeah, so my, I, I gave you earlier my initial thoughts about what makes something pretentious, but I've, I've started to move away from that because I, I feel like some of the, those definitions require you to basically act like you're psychic and you know what the filmmaker's intent was and how sincere they were. And so um, I'm going to, so my new definition 
still sort of suffers from some subjectivity problems, but basically the movie intentionally doesn't provide conventional entertainment values such as likable characters, fast pacing, or funny dialogue. I think John mentioned that basically. And then number two is the movie employs these stylistic gimmicks that I mentioned. And then three, the movie seems to imply it's your own fault for being bored and that you wouldn't be <laughs> bored if you were a smarter or deeper person. And that's the thing that's kind of subjective, but that's like, you know, that's how the movie makes me feel when I'm watching it. So I'm not talking about what the filmmaker intended or whether they're a good person or anything, you know, but that's how it mo the movie itself makes me feel when I watch it. Um, let's get Anthony back in here. Anthony, do you have any thoughts about my uh, elaborated definition there? Uh, I, I like the, the, the definition. Um, and um, as you said, there's still an element of sort of attributing intent, like the movie makes you or is like trying to make you feel a certain way or maybe makes you feel a certain way about your boredom. Um, but I, I think I agree that trying to get descriptive about pretension as a genre or pretentious science fiction as a genre rather than, you know, just trying to psychoanalyze the directors is maybe more, uh, more like is something we can take a little further. But, um, I, the other, that also made me think about, you know, that for some of these films, there, it becomes a kind of film that is very binary for me in the sense that when it works, because it's not conventionally entertaining, I think that is is certainly something I I I think would I would point to as one of the major attributes. And so, because of that, often that means I'm just kind of bored, and I might still say, "Oh, well, I appreciate what the, what it seemed like the filmmaker was trying to do. I'm not mad that I saw it, but I don't think it was a particularly successful film." Which is how I would describe most of the films I watch for uh for for this episode. But then once in a while, something that's not conventionally entertaining can just hit you squarely in, you know, in some emotional, intellectual way, and it, it yeah. becomes your favorite film. And so it's this weird thing where, and it can be completely subjective that, that I, you know, I could be John walking out of 2001 and saying this is a masterpiece, or, or the other couple walking out of 2001 being like, well, that, that was, you know, time and money I'll never get back. And, and that's, I think, what's part of, What's so interesting about these films is that, you know, I, I, I wonder if we'll start to get into somewhere some of us will have loved them and others will just be like, I got absolutely nothing out of this. Well, well, right. Let's maybe let's um, work our way from I, I, I sent you guys I rated them from most pretentious to least pretentious. And so, you know, beyond the black rainbow, I rated as 10 out of 10 for pretentious. Um, yeah. And the other one I rated 10 out of 10 for pretentious was high life. So why don't we talk about that one? So, uh, Sarah, what do you think about High Life? I gave High Life a C, um, and uh, I felt like it was more of a 5 out of 10 for pretension. Um, compared especially to Beyond the Black Rainbow, it was, you know, downright conventional. <laughs> um, it was creepy. It was incredibly disturbing. Um, but, you know... It, being able to walk away from it and talk about the themes, like knowing what the themes are, is is a big improvement. <laughs> being able to walk away from it and go, you know, that was about reproductive coercion. That was about, you know, uh, whether or not uh, there are morals or ethics that we should not cross uh, concerning the treatment of prisoners, regardless of what they have done. You know, sexual assault in space um, you know, in a, in a tin can where you're trapped with these six crazy people, um, you know, so to me, it was almost like a really effective psychological horror film. I guess, let me just say my, my main issue with high life was that I feel like that in a movie set on a spaceship, 
the first thing that the movie needs to do is make me feel like the characters are on a spaceship. And there wasn't a single second of this movie where I felt like this was actually taking place on a spaceship. It, it seems like really? it was in a hospital or something. One, one of my uh, uh, principles of a pretentious science fiction movie, I think, a lot of these movies anyway, was that the science does not matter and logic does not matter. And character motivation may be obscure and consistent, but basically the science element, the science fiction element, is is used at metaphorically it's not it, it's not really a spaceship it's a prison okay and they 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 do some things in there i thought was very interesting that for instance they talked about how okay um you know they had a gravity inside the spaceship and they said that that the ship was accelerating at 1g constantly and that would indeed give you uh a, a sense of gravity in the ship. And then if it was decelerating at 1G, it would also give you a sense of gravity. And if you did accelerate at 1G constantly for a year or more, you would get up to 99% the speed of light, okay? And so time would dilate. And there's a point in there, it said that, you know, people back on Earth, your children are, are long dead or whatever. So in other words, somebody knew something about special relativity and and, and physics a little bit. But then at other moments, when they wanted to have weightlessness, they just forgot about that. <laughs> or when the guy goes outside of the ship, uh, you know, if it's accelerating at 1G, well, you know, uh, it's it's also accelerating 1G outside the ship. And so he can't just be floating weightless outside the <laughs> ship. And, and uh, there's a moment where he takes his glove off and it floats. And it, in other words, they don't care about the filmmaker doesn't care about that, and and uh, you know it took them I don't know how many years to get to the black hole that they're supposed to be, and then and and that's just when the infant is born, and then there suddenly we're twelve years later, and I don't know where the hell they've been for twelve years, okay, when the kids uh you know uh, going through puberty the girl is, and and so I I don't I mean it it but see these are questions that the filmmaker doesn't care about, and she she the filmmaker I think was much more interested in showing the scene of the woman doctor in the orgasmatron <laughs> at length. She obviously cared an awful lot about that scene, much more about the psychological and and moral and, uh, you know, uh, the issues that Sarah raised. Uh, those things were important to the filmmaker, and none of this other stuff really mattered at all. Right, yeah, I mean... I, I felt like there were some good science things in it, like you mentioned, and I thought the visualization of the black hole was pretty cool. But it felt like she had—I don't—I don't know, but it felt to me like she had just consulted some physicist or something, and then plugged individual moments into the movie, and were, was completely disconnected from everything else in the movie. Um, and and yeah, and so I guess it, it, that's part of what makes it feel pretentious to me is that is this like what what you're describing is this it's on a spaceship but who cares that it's a spaceship um you know i'm i'm more important i'm more interested in deeper themes and that that just that kind of rankles me because i i think if you're going to put a story on a spaceship it should feel like it's on a spaceship but um so anthony what do you th did you see high life what you think of it i did yeah and i w you know to your point about the spaceship i i think that's fair uh the one thing i would push back a little bit on is i do think that she was interested in sort of creating this very claustrophobic enclosed world. And in that sense, it was successful that I don't think like the physics of it as far. I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but, but my sense of it was that, that what you guys said, that it 
She just did maybe, you know, consulted a physicist briefly, but fundamentally just did not care about the physics of it and was interested in, and the idea of, you know, what would it actually be like to be on this multi-year voyage on a spaceship? Not necessarily that interesting to her. And it was more of like an enabling device uh, to just sort of isolate these characters and put them in like a condition of psychological extremity. So that stuff I was fine with. And the idea of, you know, of not being as interested in the physics and more in the, in the character work and the psychology, like in theory, I'm open to that. I think what the reason the movie didn't work for me was because then the characters didn't strike me as particularly interesting either. And, and that they, it seemed like they behaved in, in fairly arbitrary um, ways that, that made it hard for me to find, feel like there was like a real exploration going. It just felt like characters would do things because it would be interesting or strange for them to do it in that moment. And particularly the, the Robert Pattinson character, who's sort of the, I guess, ostensible central character or protagonist. I just did not, never really got a, a good read on him and never found him particularly compelling. And so much more than the, you know, failure of the science, I just failed to invest in the characters. And so the, the movie ultimately didn't do much for me. Well, and I, I think that that's a really characteristic you know, attribute of, of all these movies, maybe with some exceptions, but of the sort of pretentious movies is these characters who are very passive and listless and in a trance and seem to act without any particular motivation. Um, and it's almost like, yeah, again, it's like this movie's too important to present characters who seem human because we're dealing with deeper themes or, you know, and, and that's an, I, 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 um, Sarah, what do you think about that? Do you think that, that sort of well, if, if any of the films uh, deserved to have their characters act like that, it would have been this one, which is ironic. Sort of the, uh, you know, if I was in that situation, I would probably be listless as hell. Like I would have given up long ago and would have been sort of reduced to mammalian animalistic behaviors of just trying to keep myself alive. Um, and uh, to me, it felt like a, a spaceship in the poetic sense, which again, Anthony touched on, but you know, this sense of you very, they did a very good job making you feel like they were all trapped in this tin can together and, you know, made you really, and, and that heightened the sense of, you know, danger and of, of, of the constant violation of personal space and boundaries um, that were just sort of liquid uh, throughout the whole film and that made, you know, that added to the sense of being incredibly unsettling. But, you know, again, like for me, it's sort of like the the characters uh, of, of any of the films that we're going to talk about today. Um, the fact that these characters have sort of been beaten into, you know, psychological submission in this case did make sense. And the others, not so much. Um, but, you know, in, in this one, it, 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 it was clear to me, but what, what I think one of the things that they could have made it better though, is that things like how Robert Pattinson's character got to, uh, got in this situation in the first place. Like, I think there was a dog that, you know, he loved very much and something happened to the dog that made him kill whoever killed the dog or something like that. Like, I mean, you know, you shouldn't have to be guessing about critical plot po points like that, we're trying to piece together what happened to make him in this situation. Because we're led to, 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 to expect through the film that, that his character is sort of the one that's sanest of all of them. 
and that he got into this situation um, very much haphazardly, that he sort of, it's just the, you know, one thing in his life led to another, and then when he had this child to take care of, that's when you see his humanity coming back in trying to take care of this child. I will... Um, I will say there was one scene I really liked, which is where, yeah, like he's got he's on death row because, yeah, I think he killed someone in revenge for killing his dog or something like that. And so they they make contact with this other spaceship and he goes over to it and finds that it's like Lord of the Flies with dogs where the dogs are just like all out of their cages and running, (laughs) running amok. And then he comes back and the daughter says, I want a dog. Bring me a dog. And he says, no. And she says, why? And he says, you know why? I actually thought that sequence was quite good. Yeah. I, I um, you know, what Anthony and Sarah said, I think is true. And I, I want to clarify that uh, the, the idea that they're using sci- the science fiction element as a metaphor is not a problem for me if the rest of the movie, uh, you know, is interesting. So, so uh, in other words, all that stuff about relativistic speeds and all that is really, I can accept a movie that, that, that fudges that stuff. Although it did, this movie had a really funny scene, I thought, which was a classic, as you know, Bob scene, which was a scene of the older guy and a reporter on a train, which basically explained the <laughs> rationale of why they're on a spaceship. Okay. And, and these characters are not in the movie. They're just simply there. So the guy could explain to the reporter what, what, why these prisoners are on a spaceship. That's it. Okay. And, yeah. and so that's how perfunctory that element of the story was to the filmmaker. Yet I do think it's very much about, uh, you know, Questions of personal autonomy and sex, procreation, uh, control of one's body. Uh, you know, these women in the movie are all trying to seize agency. And I thought that that was, you know, fairly interestingly worked out. Although, why there was another interstellar spaceship apparently just full of dogs, it was beyond me. Okay. I, I, I don't get that. I mean, that, the only reason that that was full of dogs was so it could have that reference to the fact that he killed the girl at the beginning of the movie over a dog. That's the only reason that other spaceship was in the in the movie, and that it was full of dogs, was so that they could make that psychological point. Okay, which is sort of making my point for me about the movie is that it's really about these other themes that, in the spaceship part of it, is is a is a means for you know talk about ultimate uh, uh, confinement. You know, on a spaceship taking years to get somewhere where everyone you le- left uh, back on Earth is dead and, and your purpose is obscure and doesn't matter to you and, and your body's being experimented with. I think that that, that I think is effective in the sense that, you know, you can see how people would behave in, in uh, extreme ways under those circumstances. All right, so let's move on. So the the other moving down my list of pretentious level of pretentiousness, I've got Starfish next. And so, Anthony, you just watched this last night, right? So what did you think of Starfish? I did not like it very much. Um, I, it was because you I, – I should say that I basically sent out a list of which of the, the movies we were discussing I'd seen and, and then asked for suggestions for which the last one should be. And you said, you should watch Starfish so you can tell me what the hell that was. <laughs> and uh, and I think, like, the, especially the beginning of the film uh, – I, it didn't quite match that level of sort of incomprehensibility. It was like, it, it made sense. It was like what, what Sarah was saying of like, if your bar is like complete avant-garde, you know, incomprehensible film, it wasn't like that. It was just not very good. Um, it was also a film that felt to me where anytime people were talking, the film was like 50 or 100% worse because all the dialogue was was really bad. And it's funny because I think someone was talking about the As You Know Bob speech in, in High Life and Starfish also feels like it, it has that. And 
it made me wonder if one of the tells of a sort of unsuccessful, pretentious science fiction film is that, you know, it seems really artful and deep, but then there's this incredibly clunky exposition because that's something <laughs> they can't bother to actually do in an organic or interesting way. And, and that was certainly the case here where there was, you know, this sort of radio broadcast and the tape recordings where they're sort of over explaining everything, even though none of it actually, you know, makes any sort of larger sense where about this sort of signal that opened a gateway to, you know, this other dimension to, to these other aliens. And, um, and it, and it just sort of like is just so clunky the way it all gets explained. And there's also, I remember, I think I was sort of on the fence of like, is this successfully pretentious or not? And then there was this conversation between, um, the, the main character and the, her, her imagined version of her dead best friend towards the end. And it was some of the worst dialogue that I have seen in a film in a really long time. And I was like, oh, like, this is just really bad writing. I think that some of the visuals are very striking. The, the, this, just this abandoned town covered in snow with the woman, you know, walking around thinking about her dead friend covered in this bear fur. I think in a lot of ways was, was sort of beautiful. But then as soon as anyone opened their mouths, it got really stupid. Well, let me point out though, <laughs> Anthony, that this movie is 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Can you make any sense out of that? Um, I cannot, the only thing I would say is that there's a, a curve for independent films, um, on Rotten to on any sort of review aggregator, because I think there's an element of, if you didn't like the film, why would you bother writing about it? Because, you know, un until we started talking, I had, I had never even heard of Starfish. Or, or, um, or the only, the only people who watched it were the kind of people who like this sort of movie, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's mm -hmm. a selection So I think bias. there's... Some matching of, yeah, sensibility with, with films. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I would be very surprised if the general audience response was, was similar to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, I thought that the whole, uh, tape thing and the kind of explanation for the fantastic part was pretty incoherent. And whether she was going to save the world or it turns in the end out she, she ruined the world. I mean, that was completely arbitrary, it seemed to me. What it was really about was this woman's feeling of guilt and her, her, relationship to the past and to the, her, her woman friend and to this man that she was apparently involved with. Uh, I didn't ever get exactly what the circumstances were there, but, but it seemed to me that the apocalypse was kind of an external manifestation or, or, or of, or an external distraction from her <laughs> personal issues. And the movie was really about those personal issues. Uh, mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I, I, but, but the personal story didn't really, connect with me very much. I thought actually the woman who gave the performance, because she's on screen all the time for the whole movie, it's just her pretty much, uh, was was quite good. But I still didn't know what the hell was going on. Yeah, well, I think what's meant to have happened is that, yeah, she cheated on, I think, her boyfriend at the beach with some guy. And I actually thought the image of, um, you know, there's this guy standing in the waves and then she's naked and then it's all very harshly lit by the headlights from the car. And that image recurs a couple of times throughout the film. I thought that was actually pretty effective and creepy. Um, but, yeah, it just doesn't there's just so much just dead space in the movie. And she's the, the, the premise is that she's assembling this mixtape and she's been told, you know, she has she's going around trying to find these audio cassettes that each have a different piece of music on them. And she's been told that somehow some signal is encoded in them. And if she assembles them all together and plays them, it's going to save the world. And I, I think I read afterward that this movie was written and directed by somebody who's in a band and all the songs in the movie are all from his band. 
And I was kind of like, oh, okay, that actually makes a lot of sense uh, now, now that I know that. See, um, I couldn't tell whether she had cheated. I thought she was having an affair with the, her woman friend who was dead and that that she had cheated, either cheated with the man, although she was involved with the woman, or she cheated with the woman because she was involved with the man. I, don't, and, <laughs> I thought the scene on the beach was pretty clearly her cheating uh, memory. Right. And then there's another man that you see her spending a lot of time with who I assumed was either a boyfriend or husband who she'd been, you know, involved with and then cheated, uh, on that guy with the person at the beach. Um, but it not only was it unclear, but it also felt sort of emotionally incoherent to me because there are sort of these two threads of guilt, one being about the death of her friend, one about the cheating. And it seemed like neither of them you know, overlapped or reinforced or illuminated each other anyway. It was just these two kind of separate, not particularly filled in or particularly distinctive ideas about guilt. See, Sarah, what do you think of Starfish? Yeah, I think that maybe one of the things to add to your list, uh, David, is, you know, this idea of over-explaining the things that don't matter <laughs> and under-explaining the things that do. <laughs> you know, that's, like, a, that's a brilliant think- way to put it, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, so to me it was just uh, like I, you know, nihilistic millennial embraces end of the world, n- learns nothing. And, you know, it's kind of like I could get behind this movie if it was about her character development and the rest of it was just, you know, sort of half dream, half reality, uh, you know, very surrealistic elements. That's fine. But she never actually changes. She never actually makes a journey. Like, you know, she starts out you know, sort of just disinterested and passive. And as the movie progresses, she kind of starts to pay attention to some things and tries to get interested in unraveling parts of what's going on. And then in the end, she's like, oh, no, nihilism was the right answer. (laughs) And she just kind of goes back into that, oh, fuck everything. I'm going to float into the ether. Nothing matters. And, you know, it's just, it's kind of like, I, I think I could even get behind it if it was really about loss. Like one of the reviews that I read about it, um, you know, the, the reviewer was very kind and, and was saying, well, this is, this is all about loss and, and, and grieving. And t- to me, it's like watching a, somebody go through grieving and loss who is in their mid twenties. And I, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like, it's for lack, I'm trying to dance around, not saying it's kind of like watching somebody go through grieving who's shallow. And that's what it felt like. <laughs> I'm sorry. I apologize. I actually think that the actress did a fantastic job. She was wonderful to watch. And I think one of the reasons why it was watchable at all was the fact that she was so compelling individually. What did you make of the completely random animated sequence? It was random. <laughs> it was animated. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the only, I would say that, that one other thing that sort of left a bad taste in my mouth was that, um, you know, partly because, I mean, it's a very small cast, but that, like, it felt like such a, a – another sort of ungenerous w- way to talk about it, it is not only is it about somebody who's sort of young and, and shallow, but also it's a very white movie. And there's, like, no people of color. And all the music, to simplify radically, feels very white to me. And – that then there's this anime sequence and it, but it was very, I, I don't know. It, it felt kind of strange to me that, that a movie that in so many, in so many other ways had felt like it came from, um, you know, this, 
again, not to sound like broken, like a white filmmaker with a very white point of view, and then thought it would be kind of fun to do this anime sequence, but like without any kind of, um, it, it, it I, I don't know, it, it didn't work for me because of that. It felt like it was sort of appropriation without any sort of purpose. See, see Anthony, yeah. I think you're just not deep enough to understand this movie because actually the reason <laughs> there was snow everywhere is to symbolize the oppressive power of whiteness all over the <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's probably what was going on. You're right. Yeah, I, you I just, just need to watch it, it a second all, time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I've actually been in uh, that town, uh, Leadville, Colorado. Oh. Uh, yeah, I went to a writer's workshop there run by Ed Bryant a million years ago. Uh, it's really, the air is very thin. That probably explained the behavior of everyone there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's at 10,000, it's over 10,000 feet at that town. I would also contrast it with um, Melancholia, which I think is a movie that's also about the end of the world and depression and loss. And to me, like, that is a genuinely moving and really effective film. And and I was trying to think about why one worked for me and, and the other didn't. And and I think part of it is because even though I, I suspect that in both cases the director and writer is more interested in the emotional um, state of the character and, and the idea of like more of like a personal end of the world than in the larger end of the world. Like in Melancholy, they still commit to the idea that the world is ending and that still means something. And there's this sort of confluence of, you know, like these sort of suicidal depression and the end of the world versus in Starfish where you, as I think, you know, Sarah was saying, like the, they just don't take that. There's just not a the, the the apocalypse. You don't really buy it. it. Doesn't feel like it has any way. It would be one thing if the apocalypse felt real, and then it was interesting that the woman didn't seem very invested in it. But it seemed like the film was on the same page and also didn't find the apocalypse very interesting. I agree with Melancholia uh, being very moving film. And again, it's uh, you could say I'm sure many people have called that movie pretentious, but it it worked for me a great deal. One of the movies here that we we have on our list here that that worked for me very well that I cannot perhaps rationally explain why it worked when other ones didn't is under the skin, which I thought was a great movie, but uh, I know other people think it's, it's awful. So uh, maybe we can talk about that. I don't know. Okay, sure. I, I mean, I suspect this is the one that Sarah hated. Is that right? <laughs> no, the one I hated was beyond the black rainbow. I actually saw under the skin when it came out, uh, at, at a screening where the director was there, actually. Oh. Because it was, like, I was I was living in San Francisco at the time, and I was in a group called SF in SF, which would be science fiction in San Francisco. And, you know, there were all of these fun events that they had, and so I went to a free screening with no expectations whatsoever. And the director was there, and we had a whole Q&A afterwards. Um, so... And some of the people who were in the audience had, like, read the book, and they were super invested in it. And so it was a fascinating experience overall. But I do not thank him for the one scene that will be with me for the rest of my life. It's one of those traumatic, awful scenes that you see in a movie where you're like, well, shit, that's going to be with me forever. I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night thinking about that scene until I'm 80 years old. <laughs> this is a scene on, scene on the beach? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's an amazing scene. Um, yeah. But see now, the fact that that scene is stuck in our minds, it seems to me that that says something, all right? And and I don't feel it was simply an exploitation. Um, what I, one number of things val- I valued in that movie were one, the science fiction element is that you've got an alien that is made to look like a, a very very attractive human woman who's cruising the streets of Glasgow, picking up men, and then basically 
she's hunting them to, I guess their bodies are, are uh, broken apart and used for whatever purposes these aliens have. For, for meat. I think they say meat. explicitly but, that they but eat them. But she, she herself is not really a, a human female, but she looks like one. And, and, and so she doesn't really know. She sort of can simulate human behavior enough to be able to track these men, but not any more than that. And so to me, this became a movie really about male and female sexuality, the way a woman is defined to men by her body and how uh, they, how men will follow their sexual desire anywhere. (laughs) Uh, uh, Basically how both men and women are trapped by sex and how that character of the alien eventually comes to try to understand what it is that she is and and how disturbing that is it's a very disturbing movie and and uh had many images and moments that to me spoke to in other words it used that idea of an alien posing as human metaphorically in the sense that we're at least maybe all women are aliens posing as human to men and maybe men are you know trapped by forces that they don't understand uh and and uh, it's it's a really uh, a dark vision of of, uh, of male and female sexuality. It seemed to me. I mean, I think that this is a good movie. I mean, I would encourage people to watch it. I don't think it's that pretentious, but I mean, I think there is a certain level of pretentiousness to it. But I think there's there's a lot to really like in this movie. I I love the image of the when the men are being seduced. Somehow they're kind of like wading toward her into this black goo, and then they sink under the surface, and then. Somehow they kind of like the meat gets sucked out of their bodies and their empty skins are just kind of floating down into the dark water. I think that I think that's just fantastic. Um, I mean, I think that this movie works really well for me as a movie as science fiction. I think it's doesn't work all that well and is sort of um, irritating in that, like, like I just said, I think it, it says explicitly that they're getting the men for their to, for, the, for their meat to eat them. But now that I think about it, I think maybe I read that in the synopsis of the book and that's not actually in the movie and in the actual movie people can correct me if i'm wrong it's just like makes no sense at all you have no idea what's going on and and just well, you still understand that they're being absorbed sort of by osmosis so you kind of get that overall but yeah i mean i i i gave the movie like a b i thought it was it was great i i never want to watch it again but <laughs> i don't really have to because it'd be with me for the rest of my life whether or not <laughs> yeah. i ever watch it again well, I, I, no i gave it a b as well but it's it just like it just raises so many issues of like is this really an effective way for aliens to get meat you know like like it, like as science fiction it just makes no sense and so I, I wish that they had just made it some sort of surreal fantasy and not involved aliens at all this is uh really actually uh what I was saying at the beginning is that I can't really, I mean, I agree that it doesn't make much sense at all in science fiction terms, but it seemed to me that the content of the movie was, was interesting enough and probing enough and disturbing enough that I don't care. And, uh, the science fiction side of it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but I guess I feel like it overcame that, that problem. Uh, it was using the, you know, an alien as a metaphor, uh, uh, but in this case, I was willing to go along with it. Whereas in another movie, which is with oh, one of the things it did do is it didn't really explain anything. Okay. And, and rather than explain badly, like some of these other movies, uh, or explain too much and become unconvincing, it explained nothing. And so, uh, you basically were floundering around trying to, uh, but it, it also felt like there was a certain consistency to the scenario that was being played out. 
uh, each time with the, with the alien. Uh, at any rate, uh, it worked for me. I, I'd give it an, an A or an A minus. Uh, Anthony, what do you think? I, I would also give it, you know, maybe an A minus B plus. Um, and, and I think that just to defend it, maybe a little bit of science fiction, I, I agree that, that there's no picture that exists in my head of how this alien society works or anything like that at the end of the film. It's, it's basically just a big question mark. But why that still worked for me was because instead of trying to explain who the alien is, and, and it's sort of, I think, that sort of common thing that they say, you know, when you're trying to write science fiction and write aliens is this idea, question of how do you write from a truly non-human perspective when you yourself are human? And instead of trying to fill that in, what it felt like instead was to show an alien perspective on humanity. And yeah. so where it was everything that we did, everything that we were, and everything about particularly our sexual practices was just completely incomprehensible to her. Um, and so in that sense, it made it, you know, that, 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 though, that was sort of what made her feel alien was because she just so completely, and I, I realize in this context, you know, her and she is, you know, sort of just a shorthand. It's not really clear. Um, but that's what was good about it was the sort of, um, that, that it was an alienist by making us alien rather than by filling in the details of the alien. And then to an extent, it made me, think, oh, well, whatever these aliens do and whatever their behaviors and motivations are, are would be com- just as incomprehensible to me as my motivations are to them. Um, so in that sense, I, I that part didn't bother me. And I, and I agree with John about just having the sort of almost the courage to just not explain it. Like if, if you really yeah. don't care about the explanation, don't explain it. That is fine. Um, if, if I had any reservation about the movie, it was more just some of those stylistic things that you talked about more broadly with pretentious films where it just kind of felt like it went a little bit too long. And I could, I, I feel like I would just absolutely love this if this was like a 30 or 45 minute film at, um, an hour 40. It was fine, but felt a bit long. I mean, I'm going to say like, I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent with this, but I, I feel like I'm all, I'm not, really persuaded when people talk about oh they're aliens so they're totally incomprehensible i mean like are they abducting people to eat them or not like it seems like (laughs) if they're evolved (laughs) organisms they they're probably you know like i i I just don't understand that at such a basic level of motivation that aliens would be that incomprehensible that there's nothing more they could be said about what they're doing in this movie well, I mean, the That's idea of fair. coming to, you know, from interstellar space to Earth in order to harvest human males for meat is really not economically sound. It seems. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't necessarily think that, that, that they were enacting their end game, but that they were gathering information and that, you know, sort of the preliminary stages of almost like this woman was a scout. And, uh, you know, for me, that was very effective because it added to the overall sense of foreboding where you're like, well, is this going to become a bigger problem? Are they going to expand, you know, are armies of this woman going to come back? And because it was on such a small scale, it really made it successfully creepy where you're like, you know, this could totally happen unnoticed and go on for any, you know, unknown period of time. And yeah, you'd have missing people. It would just be like a missing people, you know, scenario. But I totally got the sense that they were just sort of gathering information about this world as to whether or not they could, you know, come back with a stronger force. I mean, that that's a perfectly, you know, reasonable interpretation. But I feel like I could come up with 50 other interpretations that would have just as much, uh, you know, basis in the text. And I think I think that's sort of an issue for me is if, if something is that open to interpretation, what is it actually saying? Uh, I. I 
believe, I haven't read the novel, but I believe in the novel it's made explicit that they're collecting humans for meat. And uh, I don't know much more about it than that. So, I, I do get the sense that um, the the filmmakers, and, and I, I'm not 100% sure about this because it's been a little while since I was reading about the film, but my sense was that the film and the novel were, were pretty different. And, and even the author, when they saw the film, was like, this is a good film, but this has very little to do with the novel that I wrote. I believe that's right. I have a good friend who's very much a fan of the book, and he says the movie is very different. Yeah, that's my understanding as well. All right, so let's move on to Upstream Color. I also gave this a B. I think this is a pretty good movie, uh, although it bordering on fairly pretentious to my mind. Um, how about uh, Anthony? What do you think of Upstream Color? This was probably my favorite of the ones we watched. Um, and, and this is, one, I think, the one I seen first because it was the one where I just really liked um, Primer, the, the movie that Shane Carruth had done before this. And I don't think I like this quite as much a primer, but I, but I liked it a great deal. Um, and it feels like, um, uh, a movie that like uses a lot of the tropes that you were talking about in terms of these long shots, sort of not a lot of conventional character behavior, but it feels like it, it sort of has this emotional purpose that it, you know, starts with this really traumatic event of, a woman, you know, having basically being mind controlled and manipulated and having her memory erased and then meeting somebody else who's gone through the same experience. And so for that reason, um, it, it made a lot more sense to me why these people wouldn't behave like conventional people, why they would be so confused and so overwhelmed. And, and, and so I felt like it was, um, yeah, I, I just found it moving and striking and and you know it's been a few years since i've seen it now so i think there were, i had to go back and reread a lot of the details about like the ecosystem you know the life cycle of the worms and stuff like that and i'm not sure 100 percent like how much that completely holds up but um I, I i remember just finding it like really striking when i watched it i mean i think that the characters and the relationship in this are great i mean I, th th those works really well for me I, I totally bought that um i feel like for me that it sort of goes off the rails a little bit in the second half where the, the ending seems very like fake, happy ending. Um, and there's just, I'm not really sure what was going on with the pig farmer guy exactly or what, what, what his deal was. And there's just so many shots of pigs in this movie. Like I never <laughs> want to see another freaking pig ever again after watching this movie. And it was interesting because, you know, it got near, near the end of the movie and there's this scene where they're like, they're in some sort of, um, drainage, tunnel thing and they're sliding rocks down the sides and it just popped into my head like i bet that this actress is shane Carruth's real life girlfriend and so i googled that and i think that's true uh, she was describing him as her fiance at one point and I, I just sort of had this image of like you know that they're hanging out and he's a director and she's an actress and he's like oh let's make a movie together it'll be great we'll be like these lost souls who find each other and and I just imagined in my head, like, maybe she has one of those pet pocket pigs. And she's like, can we put pigs in the movie? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, babe, this movie's going to have so many pigs, you wouldn't even believe it. And <laughs> it was just sort of interesting to me that uh, that Another Earth, um, Upstream Color, and High Rise were all sort of collaborations between, you know, husband and wife or boyfriend and girlfriends or whatever in terms of the main actress and or the lead writer. And I just wonder if there's just something about making a movie with your significant other that maybe risks self-indulgence and ending up on a 
list of pretentious movies. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, there's there's something about making a movie with yourself that does that. <laughs> I, it, there's also an element of, you know, when you make an independent film, there's probably, an, uh, you know, you're just pulling from people you know and people you can call in favors. Because I assume that no one is getting rich off of any of these films, so that may also be a component of it. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I can imagine that when it's very much like, here are all the people I know and care about who are like, and we're all working on my project together. You're less likely to get someone to like raise their hand and be like, what is happening in this <laughs> scene? Why is, you know, seems like we're doing a lot of shots of pigs. Like what, what's the deal with that? Uh, I, I also saw upstream color because I liked primer so much. And I, I, I very much uh, reacted the way Anthony described. Uh, it did, I just didn't, from watching the movie, could not put together the whole thing, life cycle, worms, pigs, orchids, <laughs> that thing. I had to read about it later, and it seems to me that the movie's not very transparent when it comes to that. But then having read about it, it seemed to me that, at least in Shane Carruth's mind, he had a, a plan. He had some, some pattern that he was trying to follow. Um, Certainly, individual sequences of that movie work really well, and I, I was very intrigued by the two characters. And uh, they're the, it, to me, uh, often what happens with these movies, if they work at all, they work with some kind of. Uh, they feel like they they touch some kind of psychological truth or or raise some question that seems real that may have nothing or little to do with the science fiction premise. So that to me, a lot of what was going on with this movie was how some people will manipulate other people, you know, for their own purposes. And then also how sometimes we feel connections to other people and, you know, that we don't have a way of explaining. And, or the, and it's, you know, in this movie, it turns out it's because you had worms put in your head. Okay. Uh, or you're connected to a pig or something <laughs> like that. You, you, you're, you're motivated to do things that don't seem like they make any sense in our own lives, we have that feeling sometimes. And I think that this movie sort of presented a weird science fiction rationale for that kind of real uh, thing that really does happen to people in, in psychologically in, in real life. Right. I, I definitely have the feeling that Shane Carruth is 100% sincere with this movie, just based on what I know. And that's why I, I feel like it's important to separate the definition of pretentious from you know, from phoniness or, or, you know, insincerity or something, because if, you know, I, I feel like he was probably 100% sincere in making this movie. But if someone asked me, is this movie pretentious? I'd be like, yeah, it's kind of pretentious. Um, certainly nevertheless. difficult to follow, I think. Yeah. How about Sarah? What'd you think? Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with a lot of that. I, I also liked it. Um, I, you know, really thought that the, uh, it was very compelling to see the story of people coming together because of shared trauma, you know, where you end up, um, becoming friends with people, you end up becoming, uh, you, you choose spouses based on, you know, having similar experiences. Um, and to explore that on a very meta level, um, was kind of cool. But, um, I do think that it kind of suffers from the under explaining the, you know, stuff that's, uh, that is important and over explaining the stuff that isn't, um, like all of the shots of the pigs. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, I think that with any, with any film where you have, you're talking about, you know, making a film with your friends, where you have this spectrum where you have people who are making a film just with themselves are, you know, at risk of only presenting their, um, 
their outlook and their view in the world. And, you know, when you, other people watch it, they're like, well, I don't get it, or this is unclear, or so on. And when you have, it's just like you're watching a piece of art or, or reading a novel that's never been edited by anyone, that's never, you know, no, you, you, you're the first person to read it. And it's purely the world that, that this creator invented. And sometimes that's great, but more often things suffer because they're not you know, treated to extra voices. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have, of course, these movies that are super commercial where thousands of people have worked on it and they've been focus grouped to hell and you all, all evidence of originality is scrubbed away because, you know, you can't have any mystery in it left. And so I, I do feel again, like I do, I do wish that the best movies seem to be in the middle, but I, I think this was a wonderfully sort of charming film and very touching. And I, I think actually the ending was a nice surprise because I don't think I was expecting it. Like I, I, I somehow just thought that, you know, this was going to, you know, devolve into either the relationship not working out because they never find out what happened to them um, or what. And so the idea of sort of building a community around people who have also experienced this very specific thing that was interesting to me. I really, I really appreciated that. What you said earlier, that makes me think, I wonder if there should be some sort of like dating app where, <laughs> you know, uh, pretentious auteurs can get hooked up with commercial hacks and then they sort of work together. And... <laughs> I mean, that would be an amazing romance film <laughs> in and of itself. <laughs> I do think that's part of what Hollywood has been trying to do in terms of like a lot of the Marvel films, they take, you know, indie directors and then give them a blockbuster film. And sometimes you get really successful fusions of, of, of sensibilities where it's both very commercial and very personal. Um, and I mean, Black Panther, I think is a great example of that or, or the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Um, and then other times you just get, you know, everything that made somebody, an interesting director gets sort of filed away when they make a big, you know, uh, a big Hollywood film. Um, I would also, you know, just in terms of the, what we were talking about with the auteur, and then the actress dating, who's also their girlfriend. Um, I do think that's interesting. I think just to complicate things slightly, I would point out that it, so Amy Simons, who's the, the star of Upstream Color, I mean, she's also like an accomplished, uh, screenwriter, independent screenwriter and director on her own. And then the star of Another Earth also was one of the writers. So it's not a pure sort of like director and then actress as like vessel and muse for their vision. It, it was a little bit more collaborative than that, I think. Right, actually, uh, I can't remember the name of the actress writer of Another Earth. She uh, made, Britt Marling. Britt, Britt Marling. Marling made two others pretty good science fiction movies uh, that I, I thought were, and they were independent films, low budget, but uh, intelligently made. I thought so. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that they were great movies. I can't really think, can't think of the title. And one of them was she was a time traveler, purported to be a time traveler from the future in the present in Los Angeles. Sound Angeles. of her voice That's or it. sound of my That's voice. It. Yeah. Yeah. The sound of her voice or his voice or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, well, she also, I haven't seen it, but apparently she stars in, in wrote or co-wrote or something, the TV show, the OA. Uh, and, um, I've seen that. That's, that's incredibly pretentious show. and I love it. <laughs> and she, yeah. is, she is definitely a writer. I mean, she, she's written all these things herself. So, uh, that's something that's interesting to me to have an actor writer uh, involved in these things. Yeah, and she's great. I mean, like you were saying, the actress in Starfish is great. I thought Britt Marlin was fantastic in Another Earth. And actually, I, I liked it quite a bit. I mean, I think that – and it's I, don't, I had this as the least pretentious on this list. I, I don't think it's that pretentious, just in terms of there's like a lot of shots of her walking around 
at night do not doing anything like way way more than there needs to be but um overall i thought it was a pretty enjoyable movie i think the big sort of its big liability is that it sort of presents itself as this interesting science fiction scenario of what would happen if there was this other earth in the sky and there were duplicates of everybody who would ever live everyone alive up there and everything and then the movie itself is basically a, a movie about a girl who causes a drunk driving accident and then lies about it and then all this you know all the, all the sort of predictable the predictable right. plot arc of a character right. who's lied and then you know exactly what's going to happen for the rest of the movie. It's once uh, again, you know, yeah, this is a metaphorical science fiction thing. I mean, if you really had a planet, uh, the, you know, the size of the Earth, uh, it would destroy – there would be, <laughs> you know, it would be when worlds collide, okay? And there would not be uh, – here it's just simply the concept of a, a duplicate Earth with duplicate people on it. And in a way, that's scientifically absurd, but it – but it does raise issues of like, okay, well, what if, you know, what if I didn't do that thing? What if I didn't you know, get drunk and cause a car accident that caused people to die and go into comas? And, and, and really it's about, uh, the weight of guilt and regret and responsibility. And, and those are all worthwhile things. I think the movie actually is, is quite, uh, uh, moving on that level. Uh, this woman trying to come to grips with, uh, you know, the consequences of what she did, not intending to do it. Uh, and then you, you know, then you have the idea, oh, there's another version of her on this other planet. Did she do the same things? And, uh, did she have a better outcome? Uh, and so that, that to me is the, that's the only science element of science fiction that I can remember from the movie that, that comes in is that the concept that there is someone just like you elsewhere who may or may not have lived the same experience. I mean, there's this minor subplot involving a ticket to go to the other planet that comes in more toward the end. But but overall, it plays a very small role in the story. And I, I just think I, I found this pretty enjoyable. I, I think I, I enjoyed it a lot more because it was recommended to me, if you want to call it that, as a pretentious movie. I, I think that if I had gone in with my ordinary expectations, um, it might have been more disappointing to me. Um, but, I, you know, uh, I, I would recommend watching it if you if it seems interesting and just just knowing that. Um, all right. So I think we've talked about everything except for High Rise. Um, who's seen High Rise? I, I, I actually watched it last night. And it's interesting to me because after watching in the previous, you know, several nights, uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow and Starfish and, uh, uh, I can't remember what the other one was, but, but I thought oh, it was a breath of fresh air, frankly, <laughs> because one, it's based on a book. Okay. So it actually, someone actually did some work to, make a, uh, at least an attempt at a coherent story. J.G. Ballard did. Okay. It's a fairly well-known novel he wrote in the seventies too. Uh, uh, it just seemed to me, I mean, it, it was funny. Parts of it were funny. God, thank God there was some humor. All right. Because most of these movies were <laughs> deadly serious. All right. The first line of this movie, you know, the guy's out on the, the porch of his high rise apartment, which has been trashed. And he talks about how things have gotten easier now that most of the people are dead. And, and it's, you know, it's just, uh, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, it starts with that, that, and then it flashes back to when he first moved into the building, you know, six months ago or whatever. And, and, uh, I don't know. It just seemed to me that, that there was a lot, uh, um, the characters' motivations, given the context they were set in, were, were, uh, rational. Uh, you know, there were, there were some things that stretched reality, certainly. I mean, the whole idea became sort of allegorical of this high rise as being, you know, human society or England or whatever. Uh, 
with the different classes and, and it's sort of like that movie Snowpiercer, which I didn't like, uh, uh, in the sense that the physical setup of the train here, the physical setup of the high rise reflects the social differences between the people in society. And, uh, but I thought given that kind of fuzzy allegory that's going on, it was really quite, quite good. Well acted and and uh, you know visually interesting and and it had uh, plot elements that I cared about what was going to happen. Although I can't say I really liked any of the characters. I want to come back to Snowpiercer, but first, let, Sarah, did you watch High Rise? Yeah, I uh, I saw it when it came out. I uh, I also felt like you know among the the ones that we've watched, it was almost the most commercial. Um, that and you know another earth probably um but yeah i mean i i i enjoyed aspects of it and i would say that that you know the aspects of it that i found frustrating were not necessarily related to pretentiousness um you know i think in in a lot of ways too i think so often what happens with these movies is that they are that a marketing department is handed these films and the marketing department is like, all right, how can we lie about this film too? <laughs> and then it ends up being completely different. And it's like, you know what? You might actually make more money if you present the film as what it is. Like the, 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 you know, we're talking about another earth and, and the, I remember the trailers for that made it seem like a science fiction film. It made it seem like it was this other planet. What would happen? And that was really a, the subplot of the, of the whole movie. The whole movie was, in many ways, very much conventional uh, story about you know guilt, and it was very successful in that, and 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 very interesting. But it almost had nothing to do with the with the trailer. So I feel like um, you know High Rise had had the same problem. But yeah, I also agree. It was funny. It was dark. Um, you know, I gave it a, a B. Mm-hmm. How about Anthony? Did you see this? I did, and I I basically agree that it was. I mean, I I think. In some ways, the the sort of social critique felt kind of simplistic, and and I think that if you sort of boiled it down to its sort of core ideas about sort of class warfare and 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 things like that, I I don't know that it's particularly nuanced or has anything all that fresh to say. But like as a sort of aesthetic and stylistic exercise, I thought it was great. It was just like really fun and um you know funny and dark in the ways that people had said um and and willing to go to these you know really strange uh absurd places and 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 the sort of like juxtaposition between people sort of trying to go about their normal lives as civilization or at least civilization in this one tower becomes increasingly barbaric um i thought was was very funny and and so i i I, yeah, I, I liked it. I mean, I thought it had a lot going for it. I mean, there's a lot to like here, but o- overall, I, I just sort of fell flat for me. But uh, to me, this almost feels like I haven't read the novel, but I feel like this is maybe a too faithful adaptation of the novel where, you know, they, they just sort of took the highlights of the novel and put them together into a movie. And it's not taking advantage of the film format in the way that it should, because I, I feel like film is particularly bad at showing events that unfold over a you know, extended period of time. And that's kind of what they're trying to do here. So you felt like it, they didn't feel connected or just that it, it was just too long or. Yeah. It, the, the pacing felt weird and it just didn't feel like the scenes flowed from one to the next. It, it felt like a collection of scenes rather than a coherent storyline to me. Mm, I, li- I liked it 
better than that. Uh, it seemed to me that it had a couple of different plot threads, but it did follow them and it did weave them together. And maybe it felt like you were jumping from one to the other. One of the things that's interesting to me is that I looked on Rotten Tomatoes and High Rise is listed in the uh, in the fifties, and uh, Starfish is like ninety. And so I don't understand. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I am completely flummoxed by that. I don't get it. All right, I, I would watch High Rise five times before I watch Starfish again. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's the, there's pretty much no correlation between the Rotten Tomato scores for these movies and how I ranked them. Um, so it's, yeah, but it's, it's a very interesting question to me. Is that these are critics' uh, views? Okay, and so. The critics really like Starfish, okay, and and you know I I don't quite understand or or uh, uh, High Life too, the one about the uh, spaceship. They really liked that a lot. It was getting nineties and stuff, and 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 uh, and yet High Rise just uh, left them cold. Which maybe maybe that's right. I don't know. I I do think there's an element also of Rotten Tomatoes where basically every critic is either it's a positive or a negative review. And so what you see sometimes is movies where everyone was like, sure, that was pretty good. That can be 100% on Rotten Tomatoes versus like if half the people were like, this is a great film. And the other half are like, this is pretentious garbage. Then that's a 50%. Um, So I think sometimes it can also just reflect everyone sort of shrugging Mm -hmm. um, and saying, eh, all right, sure, where – so maybe in a sense you could say like High Rise's response is that it was, and I haven't like looked that closely, that it was a sort of polarizing movie where some people thought it was, um, you know, well, you know, liked it the way we liked it. And then other people felt like it was sort of maybe style over substance or something like that. Yeah. All right. So I want to come back to Snowpiercer because I thought it was interesting that when I was asking for suggestions, two movies that came up a lot were Snowpiercer and Interstellar. Neither of which I think are that pretentious. I mean, like, if you go back to my definition here, uh, the movie intentionally doesn't provide conventional entertainment value. I think that both of those are clearly trying to provide conventional entertainment value and, to my mind, mostly succeeding. Um, So I think, obviously, people who think that they're really pretentious are just using a different definition of pretentious than I am that maybe goes back to that they feel the filmmaker is not sincere or something, but... Um, does anyone feel that Snowpiercer or Interstellar are very pretentious movies? No, I mean, I love both of those films and I, I saw both of them, I think in the theater and I, I, you know, I thought these are great movies. Many, many of my friends love Snowpiercer, but I don't, but I, I, I <laughs> but do you think say, it's pretentious? I don't know if I'd say that exactly. Actually, I think what this comes out of might be this, that if you're a science fiction person, uh, there's a kind of, Almost a there's a an element of science fiction viewership that doesn't like when science fiction stories get above themselves. You know, science fiction there was that that slogan that uh, used to be uh, let's get science fiction out of the classroom and back into the gutter where it belongs. <laughs> and and I think that there's that that feeling that if a science fiction movie has some some uh, you know. Uh, message or, uh, you know, some kind of subtle uh, uh, intellectual uh, uh, point is trying to put across, then uh, to the degree that it does that, it's uh, it's getting, getting above itself. So Snowpiercer had, you know, a lot of action and, you know, uh, humor and, and things like that, but it also had this allegory that was going, you know, uh, that, that uh, as you move farther up in the train, you're moving up through the class system. And I think that some people might say, oh, well, that in and of itself 
is pretentious, okay? Because it, it it's uh, uh, you know claiming to have a kind of uh, uh, a higher meaning that goes beyond the simple uh, uh, plot, and and uh, uh, you know maybe that's why they some people might think of that as pretentious. Anthony, what do you think? I yeah, I think that that it's not pretentious in the way that we're talking about here, but I I can see what they meant that that there's a sense of um sort of suspicion of the filmmaker almost of and or maybe a feeling of like I don't think you're as smart as you think you are like you might think this is like a really sharp social critique but uh I and and, and again I actually like Snowpiercer so I don't yeah. but again although I would actually say that Snowpiercer like High Rise is a film that I don't necessarily think the social critique is particularly that meaningful or or insightful but like I like as a film um and so I think that when they talk about pretension in that sense, they're talking about it in a different way than you are. And, and in some ways, that also brings me back to, I mean, you were talking about at the beginning about, you know, the idea of Terminator 2 as a film that's ambitious, but no one would call it pretentious. And I, and I agree that I think if we polled people on the street, you'd, you'd be very hard pressed to find anyone who described Terminator 2 as pretentious. But there is sometimes a sense when you read writing about James Cameron that, that he is like a man who is very, very full of himself and very convinced of the importance of the message that he's putting out into the world. And sometimes people want to poke fun at that. And I think that's completely justifiable. So there, that maybe Terminator 2 is not pretentious, but mm, I think maybe James Cameron is. <laughs> well, that's a whole other panel topic. But I mean, um, <laughs> I was trying to think like when, when there was so much uh, hating on Snowpiercer and Interstellar, I was trying to sort of make sense of that. And I feel like that maybe that there, there's something there that people are getting stuck on, but I don't think it's pre- what I would call pretentiousness. I think it's what I would call pseudo profundity. And I think that pseudo profundity can be pretentious, but isn't necessarily. And so to give you an example of what I'm talking about, the, the thing I really, really hated in Interstellar, I mean, overall, I liked it quite a bit. But the thing I really hated is that there's this line of dialogue where the Anne Hathaway character says, love isn't something we invented. It's something observable, powerful. Maybe it's something we can't understand yet. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. Love is the one thing we perceive that transcends dimensions of time and space. And I, I just think this is the most unadulterated balderdash. <laughs> mindless, I was screaming real. into my hands while she was giving that speech. And I was in a theater and I like had to like not be loud so I wouldn't get angry stares, but I it was genuinely difficult. I must have I must have gone into a fugue state when she said that because <laughs> I don't remember it. <laughs> I, I, I knew that was exactly what you were gonna say. Why people had that reaction to Interstellar is I think that's around the time that the Matthew McConaughey car commercial came out. Remember the one where he's oh, just right. like he's driving, yeah. The super pretentious car commercial that everyone made fun of, and it because it came around out around the same time, and you know, Interstellar had kind of they could be the same character. The guy in the car commercial went to space, like it's kind of the <laughs> same. I don't know. That's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. But right, but so you see what I'm saying though is is that if if a movie is exciting, like has action and everything, to my mind, it's not pretentious, but it can have other sort of similar flaws. And I think that, you know, acting like love is some magical thing that we can't possibly understand, uh, you know, falls into this other category of, of things that are irritating, but aren't what I would call pretentious. I feel like you could do a whole panel on that too, because like you have like the fifth element, like you have all of these movies, these, you know, ostentiously science fiction movies that decide that a, a simple human emotion 
is, you know, one of the fundamental building blocks of physics or something. <laughs> yeah. And you're, it's kind of hilarious how often it shows up in science fiction. It's funny. I, I thought, I think the fifth element is hilarious. Okay. Because it's so funny. I mean, I, it's so dumb. Oh, yeah. It's so dumb. It's I incredibly dumb. And so that the fact that the, you know, the, yeah, the resolution is so stupid is to me in keeping with the rest of the movie and didn't bother me. Um, well, it's one of the things that makes the fifth element not pretentious is the fact that it does not take itself seriously for a second. Right. Right. It's like a Marx Brothers movie. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, so to me that that's a saving grace. Uh, so one of the words that I thought of uh, in thinking about this whole conversation we're going to have was the word portentious, uh, because that to me is an element of pretension, is this sort of my manner, a pompous manner or over, over solemnity. So that speech by Anne Hathaway, which I didn't remember, but I think the problem, one problem might be is that it's presented in this very solemn way as we're going to be impressed by the deep the depth of this observation when, you know, it's not <laughs> deep or uh, if it were just maybe someone, if it were some kind of minor character saying something like that while they were drinking in the bar, <laughs> then we probably wouldn't necessarily, uh, you know, but, but the, it sort of reeks of, of author's message in that I think, uh, you know, the, in other words, the way it's presented is so that, okay, here it is, you know, the music goes down or rises or whatever, and, and we're going to tell you this. Uh, and, and there's a sense in which, well, if that does, if that really isn't very, uh, serious or, or, or profound, then, then I'm being jerked around. Right. I'm just going to mention how this panel came about is I had watched some independent science fiction films that I thought were just absolutely fantastic. Um, Prospect and The Endless. Um, and then there are some other movies that are like not, quite sort of like a little bit i mean they're basically blockbusters but they're sort of a little bit below blockbusters and a little bit more toward indie films which are annihilation and arrival that i also i just loved and i've seen some people call those pretentious i I don't agree with that at all but um i just want to point out that you know i wasn't crazy about the movies that we talked about today but there are other movies sort of in this general ballpark that i think are fantastic and so i just want to let people know that those movies are out there, Annihilation, Arrival, Prospect, and The Endless, um, and that people should definitely go go check those ones out for sure. Yeah. Dave, I wanted to ask you, you know, you were talking about the way you the the way you thought about pretentiousness kind of evolves as you're watching the film and thinking about this, but so you'd sent out this email to us where you rated the film both on a sort of overall quality and then pretentiousness, and it seemed like there was a pretty direct um, correlation where the more pretentious it was, the less you liked it. And, and so I, I'm curious, do you still feel that way? That basically, uh, if you, if you're a 10 on the pretentiousness scale, you're definitely a bad film. And if you're lower on the pretentious scale, you're probably a better film. I mean, I think I would always have that correlation. I can imagine exceptions, but, uh, there aren't any exceptions on this list. And I can't think of any offhands, but I, I can imagine a movie that I would say is pre- like, if someone asked me, is this movie pretentious? I would say, yeah, it's really pretentious, but I love it. Um, but I, I can't think of an example offhand, but I'm, I'm sure there's probably something like that out there. Actually, Annihilation would be one that I would say felt sort of pretentious to me that it had some, a lot of the stylistic things that you're talking about, but it is also, you know, conventionally entertaining and, and, and scary in part. So may, maybe it doesn't quite meet that. Dude, it's definition. got a zombie bear. It's got like a crocodile shark. Uh, I mean, right. And it has long scenes of people uh, (laughs) in boats, (laughs) rowing boats and talking about, you know, whether or not, you know, how to evolve as people. 
which again, I love the movie, but I think there there are at least stretches of it that maybe meet that definition of pretentiousness. Yeah, I mean that's fair. I mean, do you can can you think of any uh, any other examples that we should mention of things that are pretentious but good? I think most uh, uh, Anthony, uh, excuse me, uh, Stanley Kubrick movies are pretentious but good. Yeah, I agree with that. And Melancholia, which we mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen that. I'll have to check that out. Um, all right, cool. So we're pretty much out of time. So um, does anyone have any other final thoughts uh, before we wrap this up? Well, um, I hope that people keep trying to make uh, uh, ambitious movies, and some of them are going to be pretentious. But I would rather have them try and fail than um, than to just always make blockbusters. I get very tired of, you know, the Marvel series. In fact, I won't. I don't go to any of them because I just feel like I'm, I've seen it already, and it's it's all been, as Sarah was saying, you know processed and 30 million people have been surveyed and you have to do certain things and not do other things. And mostly I, I've seen it all before. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, I, all the Marvel movies that I've seen, I thought were quite good, but I've sort of stopped watching them because yeah, I just kind of, I'm full of that sort of movie or something. They're great ones. Like, and, and, and certain Marvel films like, you know, Ragnarok, for instance, I think is amazing. I've seen Ragnarok probably 10 times. I think it's hilarious. Um, and part of that comes from the fact that if, of all the Marvel films, I think it's the one that takes itself, uh, the least seriously, which I think really works really well for superhero films. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I think that, uh, it's interesting that we were, I was watching all of these movies this week, other than the ones that I had already seen. Um, and in conjunction with watching, you know, this new Netflix series, uh, with Katie Sackoff on, uh, that's very science fiction. And, you know, the, the, the contrast between these movies that are just in so many ways so inaccessible and just mysteries and you, you're just as confused afterwards, if not more so than you were when you started. Um, and the over commercial, you know, uh, just put a bunch of science fiction tropes in a blender and spit it all out. Um, you know, with great acting and wasting great acting, which is really upsetting. Um, but you know, that just the contrast between those was really interesting to me. And I think the most important thing about so many of these movies is, I'm almost always glad that I have seen it, you know, like, um, with the exception of something like Beyond the Black Rainbow, where, you know, it's like, okay, I've just, I, 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 I want my hazard pay, as <laughs> yes, <laughs> you <Johnson>. said earlier. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but, you know, with the exception of that, most of these movies, I'm like, okay, well, I'm glad that I've watched that. I'm never going to watch it again, <laughs> yeah. but it, in, it informs the greater collective when you end up you know, when you do watch some of the more commercial things where you can kind of come at them from a different perspective. And, you know, in, in, in so many ways, these movies are like watching, meeting a new person that you don't necessarily like so much. And at the end of, you know, the day you come home from a party where you met someone and you're like, why didn't I like that person? And, you know, it's sort of this interesting thing that ends up sort of adding to your overall textural understanding of the world. And so I think it's, they, they, I'm glad that they exist and I don't want to feel like, you know, we're just making fun of so many of these things because I, I really am quite glad that, that, that they exist and it's, it's difficult to, you know, hate on them completely. But yeah. All right, cool. And Anthony, final thought? 
Uh, I agree that I'm actually glad that I've watched all these films. I might feel differently if I had watched Beyond the Black Rainbow, but uh, I don't regret watching any of these. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I think other than Upstream Color, I don't think it's very likely I'll watch any of them again anytime soon, but, but I'm glad I saw them. And, um, I, I would just echo those remarks that I'm, I'm glad to see people sort of, we were talking about the idea of like resisting, um, conventional entertainment value. And on the one hand, I agree with what you guys said that, you know, there's nothing wrong with just telling an entertaining story, but I also like that people are trying to tell stories in different ways. In these cases, maybe less successfully, but, but I feel like there's also just so much room for, you know, telling a story that's compelling, but not in the way that, that Hollywood necessarily thinks of as entertaining. And so I'm really glad that these films exist. Right. So uh, just to repeat, so Another Earth, Under the Skin, and Upstream Color, I think are worth watching. I wouldn't discourage anyone from watching those. And maybe dip into some of these, these other ones if you're, uh, if you're intrigued. I would add High Life to that list if you're very interested in reproductive coercion. And I'd probably put High Rise on the list. Uh, and <laughs> probably not High Life. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, cool. So uh, I think that was a great conversation. And I hope you guys will all be back for our panel on whether James Cameron as a human being is a deeply flawed. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but we'll have to say that for another day. So we've been speaking with Anthony Ha, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and John Kessel. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you, David. Thank you. It's always fun. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Anthony Ha, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and John Kessel for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Michael C. Bezaruski, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to Linda Bond, who just increased her pledge amount. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.